Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 675 of the podcast and it is Friday the 17th of February 2023 as I record this back home in Bath. In today's show, I'm talking to Martha Carr about co-writing in a shared universe, being a prolific writer in her 60s and how to have a sustainable life, as well as how indie business models are shifting from rapid release plus KU into more direct channels like Kickstarter and why it is never too late. So this is a great discussion and that is coming up in the interview section. So in publishing news, Simon & Schuster is back up for sale, as reported by Reuters. Paramount will court private equity firms because they do not compete with it and would not raise competition concerns with US regulators that caused the demise of the Penguin Random House deal last year. Paramount reiterated that Simon & Schuster remained a non-core asset that does not fit strategically within Paramount's broader portfolio. So if you thought that was all over last year, no, and uh, many of us knew it would not be over and many of us actually thought it would be better to sell a publishing house to another publisher. But now it looks like a private equity firm, which is a very different prospect. Jane Friedman and I talked about the whole thing in more detail in episode 662 uh, in December, so just a couple of months ago. So you can go listen to that episode for the background on the Department of Justice case against Penguin Random House is acquisition. But basically, that case means no other big publisher could buy it. So I'm sure more on that once it gets bought. Not too much else going on, but I also read a lot of tech commentary newsletters. And tech analyst Ben Evans uh, did an annual review this week with sort of a look forward as well, with a few interesting things for us. So first of all, the one stat was that 5 billion people uh, have a smartphone and the pandemic broke every offline habit and every market and value chain is being remade around the internet. So it's so funny because we kind of started talking about mobile shopping a decade ago and now since the pandemic it really has sort of become a thing. For example, some people have told me they have actually found my store, said we with me, creativepenbooks.com, on the Shopify app. So I think that's really interesting. And uh, the other thing in this report, it says the unbundling of Amazon, as in people are shopping elsewhere. Shopify stores are now 45% of the Amazon marketplace. Now that's amazing. I don't know what it was before the pandemic, but basically people are now used to buying online from other places other than Amazon. And Amazon brought everyone into shopping online, but now people are comfortable with it. They'll shop in other places online. For example, I buy my uh, cat food online from a very specific um, farming place and essentially they that's all they sell. (laughs) So I will go there to buy my cat food and other places to buy other things. Also, Ben says the advantages of scale 
are now in question, which again is good for us as small independent creators. So what he says is instead of having everything in-house, then outsourced production, which is essentially print on demand, which is what we do, short runs, which is what many of us are doing for Kickstarter, new channels like, again, Shopify, social um, things, new logistics, again, that print on demand model, and then social, video, streaming and targeting. All of these things are starting to benefit smaller retailers. And again, it's funny because back in the day, (laughs) before these massive conglomerates all companies were small companies. And then like publishing houses, for example, they were all small publishing houses. And then they got bought and sold and bought and sold and and then bigger and bigger, bigger companies. So scale made everything cheaper. But now what's happening is it's it's almost reversing where small micro businesses can do super well. The last thing in this report is that uh, he does talk about Amazon. He says Amazon's ad business overtook prime revenue in 2022. So Amazon ads overtook Prime. And he also quotes Jeff Bezos, who said in 2009, advertising is the price you pay for having an unremarkable product or service. And of course, Amazon is now the world's largest advertiser. So what do these mean for us? Well, you know, like I said, people are happy buying on other stores. So don't assume people's behaviour is a particular way. So for example, I even just saw on Facebook today, someone was saying, I can't sell print direct from my own store because I can't compete with the shipping costs of Amazon, or I can't even compete with the print prices in a physical bookstore. But the point is, you are not competing with a physical bookstore, you're not competing with Amazon for shipping. What you're doing by selling direct is you are selling to people who want to support independent creators and who are happy to pay extra for shipping because they want to support an independent creator, independent printer, and essentially the businesses that keep a more thriving ecosystem. Now, I'm certainly not uh, down on Amazon. I buy plenty on Amazon and we are Prime members and we get free shipping. But I also, like I just actually, (laughs) they targeted me so well. This company called, um, have a site called Marvelous Maps and they have, these beautiful oversized maps and this one was a bucket list of the UK map and I got the email and I clicked to buy within a second (laughs) and in fact I bought two because I bought one for my mum as well and I was like that's exactly and I think I spent like 20 20 pound or something 30 pound in total and I was just like I'm not not even questioning I don't go and look whether that's available on Amazon I want to support that business um So have a think about your behaviour and then try and relate it to your books. You can do all of this. This is the kind of ultra wide view that many of us have now, which is be everywhere, but just ask people to buy on your store first. Then just to return to ads, they are a reality of selling books these days. So maybe in 2009, when Jeff said that, uh, that was before everything went pay to play. So even if you have a remarkable product or service, you're going to struggle if you don't do some kind of marketing and or paid ads. So, but the point is you can be really strategic about how you use them. So for example, I only use Amazon ads for my a select number of nonfiction books in the US and UK, as those are the markets where I make more money from the other sales like affiliate links and things. I don't do Amazon ads for fiction anymore. I tried again last year and it didn't work. So uh, it's just not cost effective. 
So I am going to do Amazon ads on pilgrimage once it's up because it is a very tiny niche with presumably very few people paying for clicks as opposed to thrillers, which are expensive. So we shall see. I'm also intending to do Facebook ads to my Shopify store for pilgrimage. And you can optimize for conversions, not clicks with uh, Shopify and Facebook integration. So that's really cool. Now, if none of that makes sense, if you're going, what is she talking about? Optimize for conversions? What? If it's all marketing speak, well, I suggest one of your goals this year might be to learn at least the basics of ads and what your options are so you don't break into a sweat at the mention of it every time. <laughs> So if you want to see the full report, it's at ben-evans.com. Links in the show notes. So in my personal update, yes, I am back in the UK and really happy to be out of the ultra dry atmosphere of Colorado Springs, where I was speaking last week. And uh, I had laser eye surgery a few years ago, which I think was the difference. Um, people with contact lenses also struggling. But um, that laser eye surgery was actually the inspiration for my short story, With a Demon's Eye, which is on creativepenbooks.com and it will be everywhere else uh, later on in March. But I am glad to be home and with my cats and my husband, of course, and getting over the reverse jet lag. <laughs> it was a good trip, though, and Superstars Conference has a lovely community. Lots of authors go each year. It is sort of primarily sci-fi fantasy focused, um, but yeah, really, really interesting. I am in fulfillment mode for my Kickstarter. All the digital rewards have gone out. So if you bought an ebook, an audiobook, or a PDF workbook, you should have that. And uh, I've put the order in for the books to be printed. So I've sent all these spreadsheets off to the printer, which is frankly terrifying that somehow I will get it messed up so the wrong person will get the wrong book. <laughs> <laughs> and also I haven't been paid yet. So it takes 14 days for the money to come from Kickstarter after it, after it finished and I'm printing on account. So essentially I pay for February's printing at the end of February and <laughs> so I should get the money a few days before. But this is again something else to think about in terms of planning your fulfillment of if you do something like this because Obviously, you have to pay for the printer and the shipping and all of that kind of stuff, but you have to make sure you get the money as well. So basically, if you are in the UK or Europe, you should get the book probably first week of March. And if you are elsewhere, it's going to be second week, possibly third week of March if you're in Australia or New Zealand or something about that. But uh, I will let you know once I send it out. This is an, another challenge. And in fact, one of the biggest nightmares of doing a Kickstarter. I say nightmares, it's still worth doing, but I really didn't factor in the, um, I mean, again, people told me this, but I, I just didn't believe it. I thought it will be fine which is about 5% so far of my transactions have had some kind of issue. So payments in dispute, so the bank has blocked people's payments or the survey for the print shipping hasn't been done. So I don't know what address to send a book to. So someone's paid for a book, but I haven't got their shipping details and they haven't got the survey email and they haven't got the emails I've sent afterwards. And some people are not getting emails from Kickstarter at all. <laughs> So if you back a Kickstarter in general, not just mine, and you're like, I wonder what's happening, then go log back into Kickstarter, go to the project and look at the campaign updates because that will tell you what's going on. Uh, that's much better 
for the creator than emailing them. But essentially, email me if you haven't got what you expected. But yes, I don't know what it is, whether it's email delivery from Kickstarter. I know some people, because they go through mobile, the email address is like an Apple ID instead of the original email. So yeah, it's I've even taken to hunting people down through my own email list on social media, all of this kind of thing. So yeah, please check your email, check your spam. Uh, because by the time this goes out, I in fully intend to have sent out my writing a travel memoir, which has turned into like a, a short nonfiction book. And that is in writing is like a little book and I'll also have an audio. So that should have gone out as well. Check the campaign updates if you are a backer. It is for backers only. So if you back the Kickstarter, it will be there for you. If you want it later, I am going to turn it into a book because there's enough words to turn that into a short book on writing memoir. And I've learned so much about this and it's a very different genre. And yeah, so that will probably be out possibly later in the year. But just going back to that 5%, it's really interesting to think that Brandon Sanderson, who, let's face it, he needs to spend some of his 47 million or whatever. But for his campaign, there would have been, if it was the same 5%, it would have been 9,000 people who likely had some kind of issue so you need a big team to manage it all. Um, yes, Kickstarter is still definitely worth it. I'm really glad I've done the campaign. Once it's all finished, I will do a lessons learned roundup on this show. But you definitely need to factor in a lot more time for fulfillment, potential difficulties and all the extras you promised but hadn't created. <laughs> and again, I was told all these things. But yeah, I just I clearly think I'm superhuman and I, I don't need to be told what to do. <laughs> But a couple more weeks to finish everything and then I can get on with other things. I really feel like I can't really do much else until this is all done. Oh, I'm also recording the writing setting course, which again was part of the Kickstarter, but I will be selling that separately. Thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. A.D. Wilk, Altolden, who I think is German, said, listening to the newest episode of the podcast, I'm so much with you, Joanna. Direct sales are the future and I love signing books. And there's a lovely picture with books in a shelf behind. N. Kamara said on YouTube, thank you for another interesting episode with Honoré Corder. I have always enjoyed writing but lacked this kind of insight and encouragement when I was young. So resources like this show help me rekindle my passion. And K9 Hannibal said, the cheat sheets are a fantastic idea. Absolutely. Honoré gave a tip. If you haven't listened to that show, Honoré gave a tip, which is every time you write a book, create a cheat sheet, one for podcast hosts, so you can get interviewed without them reading the book, but two for yourself with all the answers, because over time you will forget what books you wrote. And so you need a cheat sheet guide for each book so you can essentially remember what you wrote. <laughs> and I'm like, that is so good. And then I have some great comments on my article about how I used generative AI tools for my short story with a demon's eye. I have also had a load of comments that I deleted because they were offensive and unnecessary personal attacks. Uh, I'm kind of used to this by now, but there were some really lovely comments. Uh, Finola says, fascinating and thanks for the thorough description of how not to rely on the AI, but rather incorporate it into a genuine, human-driven, creative process. 
Thanks, Finola. You absolutely got the point. (laughs) I think most people who just attack me have not actually read my work. Uh, Someone left a comment which was, just learn how to F swear word right. And I, I kind of wanted to reply, have you actually looked at what I do here? I've written a lot of books. But then I just walked away. <laughs> but yes, there we go. You can tweet me at the creative pen with a double end. Send me pictures of where you're listening. Email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Ingram Spark, which I use to print and distribute my self-published print books wide. Because with Ingram Spark, it's my content, but they help me do more with it. And in fact, I wanted to explain how I do my print because, of course, I've been using Book Vault, who are going to do all my signed, uh, do all my books from my Shopify store because there's integration there. But I also use Ingram Spark, um, and I've loaded up the print files for Pilgrimage. I did that earlier today. And you can set print pre-orders through Ingram, which is handy. So the uh, black and white version of the 5x8 paperback and the large print have been set up on Ingram Spark. You can also do hardbacks. And essentially that will mean, and I've put them up for pre-order for the 1st of May. So libraries, bookstores, um, other places can pre-order print books through the various uh, front ends and can get ordered through Ingram. So if you publish through Ingram Spark, you will have access to over over 40,000 retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores and more across a global network of distributors, including Foils and Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK, bookshop.org, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Walmart, Target, loads of independent stores in the UK. So for example, if you wanted to get pilgrimage through your library, you should be able to order that. And of course, it does mean your books will be available to to order in these places, but you have to drive demand. Um, and this is how we drive demand. We tell our email list, we uh, tell our podcast audience, we generally tell people that they can buy our books wherever books are sold. And all of those places like local bookstores can order them. And also some people, I've actually had an email this week from someone who, a bookstore that emailed me and said, a customer has asked for this book. I would like to order it from you. And I checked and it was cheaper, cheapest to send from Ingram. So cheapest for them to get from Ingram. So I ordered it direct. So you can do that. You can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary. You can choose your discount percentage because of course the bookstore uh, has to make money. You can bulk order. So for example, if you, you're speaking somewhere, you can print in a different country. If you work direct with schools or bookstores, you can order them on Ingram and ship them to the store. So if you want your books available for bookstores and libraries, schools and universities, go wide with your print books. And as I said, I use Ingram alongside Book Vault for Shopify and KDP Print. Don't limit yourself Go wide with your print books. It's your content. Do more with it. Head on over to ingramspark.com. 
So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show and the extra in-between episodes is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and months and uh, also for the emotional support when I do get the uh, inevitable attacks. particularly around AI. Uh, Thanks to new patrons this week, Michelle Reeves, Tanya Hales, who I met at Superstars, fantastic artist and writer, and we did geek out about AI, Suzanne Grace, Tammy D. Mercer, Melanie Harlow, and Elaine Henney, or it might be Heaney. Thank you, everyone. And if you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only, which uh, is definitely skewing around a lot around direct sales at the moment. But I also answer questions around writing craft, publishing, money, marketing, mindset, all those things. And you can support the show with just a few dollars or pounds or euros or whatever, and you'll get uh, the extra monthly Q&A audio. Support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Martha Carr is the best-selling author of over 200 urban fantasy novels. Her newest series, Queen of the Flightless Dragon, will be coming out on Kickstarter in May 2023 with book one, Eamon. So welcome to the show, Martha. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. Oh, no, I'm excited to talk to you. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and self-publishing. So I started writing actually, shoot, about 35 years ago, and I was published traditionally, and I was a journalist, and I had a national column. And then, of course, the world changed, and indie publishing became a thing, and it just got more and more enticing. And then I ran into Michael Anderley, and then the rest is history. Now, some people listening might not know Michael Andley, surprising as it is, but you said the word enticing as well. So what enticed you into this world and how did your work with Michael start? So in traditional world, you have to have all your ducks in a row leading up to publication because you can't change much once the book is out there. And so if you get the cover wrong or the blurb wrong, you have to live with it. And all the marketing you do is front end loaded. And they give you about three months to prove that you can sell books. And then everything gets harder if you don't sell what they consider enough. In indie land, if you find the blurb's not working, you can change it that hour. And you can always redo all the covers. I mean, there's like a million chances to get to know your audience. And it just seems more organic and makes more sense. And a lot of the marketing you do comes after the book is out. A lot of times I don't do the biggest push until book three is coming out. I do it on book one when book three is coming out. So that's a lot more appealing. Plus the cut you get as a traditional publisher is a lot smaller. A traditional author, excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come back to co-writing in a bit. But you mentioned there that you were a journalist and also were traditionally published. So even though you found this world enticing, how did you break out of that traditional mindset? And I'm sure you have friends in your previous career who might have judged your choices. So how have you dealt with that mindset shift? So um, I have found that uh, 
inevitably I have to answer to myself. And if I make decisions based on everyone else's gut, I'll make a million different decisions and it will add up to nothing because I'll keep changing my mind. And there was a lot of pushback when I initially went indie and somebody wrote me a really long email about how I was embarrassing myself and I just deleted it. They weren't even an author. And uh, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And in the end, I just have to believe in myself and ask myself all the right questions. And it was more about what do I want to do? Plus, I was having a lot more fun as an indie author. And it just seemed more rewarding. Um, With traditional publishing, there's a lot of wait time. You have to get on the schedule. You're not going to put out many books at all every year, maybe one or two. And at most, so, and that, by the way, that's Lois Lane in the background, who is my very sweet deaf dog, who I would have to chase down to stop her from doing that. (laughs) Uh, But generally, the people I've been hanging with, I think a lot of the authors I knew were curious. It's something odd when you are more interested in a few gatekeepers liking you than a million fans. I'd rather go with the fans. My ultimate goal is for people to read the book. It's not to get editors to like me. But I I think this is a hard attitude to have and to adopt and a strong one. Like you're clearly very strong on that. I get a lot of emails from people wondering if they should make this jump. But you mentioned a few things there, like the speed of publishing and that maybe you could have only done one a year with traditional. You've written over 200, written and co-written over 200 books now. Like tell us a bit about your prolific creative process. So clearly that would have never happened in traditional land. And the process, people ask me all the time, how do you keep coming up with stories? And I think that's like my superpower. I just think I walk around looking at the world differently and weird stuff occurs to me and I keep notes. I take little notes and it just keeps popping up. I think as a kid, I always wanted to believe magic was real. And so I just have these ideas that keep popping up. That never could have happened in traditional land. And the nice thing too, is my grown son seems to have taken after me in that way. So when I'm stuck, I can call him and the strangest things come out of his mouth. Once I needed something for a magical museum and instantly without even hesitating, he said, leather armor for a whale. And that was perfect. (laughs) And so strange. So uh, yeah. And the other thing about traditional land is you really are at the mercy of a very small handful of people. And we're all human beings, so we are very subjective and opinionated. And one person may hate your book, but the uh, 10,000 fans might have liked it. You're never going to know that. Mm. So coming back to your creative process, you mentioned you have all these ideas and you write notes. So first of all, how do you take notes? Like I take them on my phone on the Things app. That's what I use. How do you take your notes? You're, You're doing a much better job than I am. (laughs) I carry around a little notebook and I usually put the notes there or if I'm without it, I just text myself. But your idea is much better. Mm. And then how do you take those notes and ideas and actually write the books? Because a lot of people have a lot of ideas and most people do not have several hundred books. (laughs) So standing out to me the most, because I kind of know when I'm going to need another idea and something is standing out to me and I'll just pick that one. And then if I'm working with Michael, I'll mention it to him and his brain is like mine. He's off and running as soon as I give him the start of something. 
And we just kind of form. So you have to start with um, how does this affect the universe? If that's what we're talking about, what's the backstory? And from the backstory, it gets easier. Once you have that, like, who is this person? What motivates them? Characters matter to me more than anything. It's why someone's going to go from book one to book two to book three. The characters will matter more. They're dropping in to see how their friends are doing. And, um, Plot matters, of course, clearly. Plot matters a lot. But if you don't have the character relationships, it's going to be hard to drag people along for an entire series. Mm, True. And we'll come back to the series side. But in terms of your actual writing process, do you dictate? Do you type? Do you get on the phone with Michael and kind of brainstorm? How do you actually get those words done? So when you're talking about creating the book, I brainstorm with Michael. If it's one of my books, I'm usually talking to Charlie Case, another author, or my son, Louis Akar, who's a music manager. And I write an outline, a very complete outline. And I will write a lot of things that will never make it into the story. Keeps the character true and gives me a better idea of who they would be if they actually existed. All the side characters are written out. So before I start writing the first word, it's really fleshed out so that I can just go. And I don't use dictation, by the way. I've tried it and I sound, I just can't do it. There's something about typing that brings out another side of me. I wish I could do it. Uh, T.R. Cameron, who writes in the Oracerian universe, mm-hmm. uses dictation. And I envy that, but uh, so far that's not me. Yeah, I must say, I keep trying it as well. I've had a lot more success with my nonfiction, but fiction, I'm like you. I almost don't know what I'm going to write. I don't even outline. I'm a discovery writer and I sit down and um, that's when it comes out is when I type things. I also work in a cafe a lot and you can't dictate in a cafe. <laughs> right. I wonder if anybody tries. I bet there are people who try. Oh, I'm sure there are, but not the type of books I write anyway. <laughs> but yeah. so coming back to, the, so you mentioned their universe and I find this really interesting. So many of us write in series, but you write in these universes. So tell us about this. How do we know when an idea is big enough for a universe? So I always say, take what you like and leave the rest. But how I do it is, I look for some kind of mythology that actually exists that I can twist to to make it bigger. I need an overriding story that's so big that it contains what happens next. Like in Orisaren, the mythology is these two worlds come together every, I think, 70,000 years. So close that it opens a gate and lets magic flow from one planet to the next. And the gates are either always in the process of very slowly closing or opening so that there's a minimum of magic available, but it grows stronger over time. And that um, the last time the gates were open, a very long time ago, some humans chose to stay on Orisaren, some magicals chose to stay on Earth, and that there's an ability to portal between them even now, but it's tricky and dangerous. So with that, you have a setup for why magic exists here. And you have the history of another planet that I can make up, as well as the history of Earth. And it makes some of the stories like about the pyramids or whatever myth you want to bring up more plausible that the Orisarin had something to do with it. You just kind of go from there. Mm. So you mentioned there an out, a detailed outline for a book, but with this universe idea, 
So is it that way back you kind of came up with the idea and then you did flesh out, I don't know, 30 books or however many books? Like, do you know I'm going to create this much in this universe? So Michael actually came up with the original story about the two worlds, but you do need to come up with that idea first. You start, we start with the macro and work our way down to the very small. And when we started the universe, Michael still claims to this day, he was talking series. I claim he said universe, but we were, you know, here we are five years later. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that we ever thought that it would be this big when we started. And maybe that's best. We were just having fun going from series to series. Nobody was thinking, well, we need to get here and we need to get there. We were very much in the moment, just having a good time. So how many books are in that universe right now? That's where the majority of books are. And there's also been six to eight, I think, authors who've written in the universe and which is also fun. Um, T.R. Cameron was found because we did an anthology fans write for fans. And so there was fan fiction in an anthology based in Oris Saren. And we happened to notice how good T.R. Cameron was at writing it. I find this so fascinating because, as I said, I'm a discovery writer and like Map of Shadows in a Map Walker series. I thought it was a standalone. Then I thought it was a bigger series. Then it was a trilogy, but it's actually a world or it could be a universe. So it could have a lot more. But how do you distinguish like what is a series? What is a series arc within a universe? Are they just completely different characters or like how do you plan out each of those things within the universe? So if I'm doing a series, which I often am, and within a uni- the Orsarian universe, then it's much like knowing what the laws of Earth are. I have to include the laws of Orsarian and what kind of magicals exist and what the timeline is. We've been doing it long enough now that there are actually two timelines we operate off of. One is where the human beings don't know magic exists, and one is a little further into the future where they do know it exists, and it's a little trickier and more violent. Those tend to be the more action adventure books. And so now I balance that as well. And it's really, once you know the rules, the laws, it gets, it's pretty easy. It's like, I know that the sun should rise every day on earth, that human beings need to breathe in and out. You've got to keep those basic rules or at least explain why you're bending them. Once you've incorporated the rules of the universe that's riding alongside it, you kind of just know what the rules are and that you've got to work within them. But another writer is writing the universe will ask, can I do this? And then I just have to ask myself, is it plausible? Do I want to deal with it later? Because it affects everybody. When someone comes up with a new rule, I just have to kind of think about it as best I can for what unforeseen thing it will affect. Mm. So with each of the series within the universe, are they different characters or are they characters that cross series to keep readers coming back? We've done both and we did it famously with Brownstone and it was really tough. And so I doubt we'll ever do it so intensely again, where it's different characters who've been established before are now in other series, but we have guest appearances, I guess you'd say it all the time. And uh, we do spinoffs. There's a character in one series that really was very popular. So we will take that character and give and build a new series just based on them. But a lot of it too is, I mean, I'm still an author and sometimes I just want to do something brand new. 
and not keep working with and come back to that later. You know, you still want it to be fun for me too. Yeah. So, well, so how do you balance that then? How do you know, like this idea is a Martha Carr and this one is going to the Oroseran universe? So if it's an idea that fits in the Oroseran universe, that's Michael and I. But if it's an idea I came up with on my own that just really lights me up and I'm willing to take the extra time because I'm still doing Oroseran and doing a series on my own. If I really find myself daydreaming about where that plot could go next, or I notice something out in the real world and I think, oh yeah, that's perfect for that. Then I know this is something I really want to do. And I just kind of follow the trail. Mm. So you do multiple books at the same time, do you? I do. And I I do. And it's not necessarily easy. I try to heavily, I try to more focus on one. And then there's one that's coming in just to kind of keep it straight. It's not easy, but yeah, I do it. (laughs) I think it's amazing. Now I have co-written some fiction and some nonfiction, and I found it very, very hard. So you co-write with Michael Anderley, as you mentioned, and I think other people. So what are the pros and cons of co-writing and any tips for people considering it? So sure. So if you're considering doing it, then you're going to need to be very open and willing and flexible and know when to just let things go. If someone overthinks things, I think I just don't think it's going to be a very good experience. And if you're working with other authors, they're a creative person as well. So sometimes somebody will have an idea. And my initial interior thought is, oh, no. But they're so excited that I'm willing to give it a day or two and think about it. And often they're right. It just wasn't what I had in mind. But that doesn't mean I'm right. And so flexibility is key. The willingness to listen. And also, you're going to have to be a good, very, very, very good manager. Keeping dates in mind, checking in with people. Where are you? Can you send me the chapters you have? It takes a lot of management skill And to be kind and courteous, but still have expectation that you'll get things on time. And it's not always going to work too, by the way. You can do everything right and somebody disappears on you or they just don't get it done. But you just keep going and try the next one. You can do everything right and it can all not go well. And that's okay too. You just keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is difficult. And I've been very lucky with my co-writers. Like I remember working with Mark Leslie Lefebvre on The Relaxed Author. And bless him, Mark's wonderful. He's probably listening. And I'm much more of a control freak. And I'm like super organized around dates and things like that. And Mark is much more relaxed. But luckily, it was fine that I took the lead. So is that another tip? Like someone has to take the lead on a co-writing project? Yes, I would say someone has to take the lead. So often I'm taking the lead on the individual project, but at the same time, I kind of have a good instinct for when I need to run something by Michael. because And partially because I don't want him to feel like he's being left out. Uh, and so I'll just leave him a quick note. Are you cool with this? And, and he's off writing. He's got his own books as well, besides me, much like me. And he, but on an even bigger scale than me. So I don't want to, you know, he doesn't need to hear about every detail. And I'm not sure he'd be thrilled by that. 
But so far, at least I have a pretty good instinct for when to check in and say, are you okay with this? And also, by the way, if you're going to co-write in indie land, you really need to talk about budget upfront as well. Because if you may have two people who are operating on different personal budgets and you just, it's better to iron all of that out upfront when there's no work that's been put in and no expectation, or at least they're lower so that you can get a good feel for what each side can afford to do. And when you say afford to do, you mean time budget and money budget? Correct. Exactly. Both. Like how often do you, can you put a book out and, or on the other side, how much do you expect to spend on covers, editing and ads and do all of that up front. I just, people are much easier going about negotiating and being honest up front. And it's easier to say, is, now is this reasonable? And by the way, when writers are writing in the universe, I mean, that's a question I I'm asking all the time is now, is this reasonable? If you get sick or if you want to go on vacation, have you put enough time in there where it won't cause a strain? Uh, So yeah, do it all up front as best you can. And then just remember that the universe you created will not fall apart if something doesn't go quite as you hoped. I mean, doing a contract up front is really important too, because you're creating or co-creating intellectual property. Absolutely. So it actually goes on after your death. It's longer than a marriage. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's so and- crazy. Yeah. So one question I was going to ask you. So I completely understand about like a universe that has its own characters and anything, but I had someone request that I write one of my characters into their universe. And I said, no, because I didn't want to mingle the- I would agree inter- with you. Yeah, the intellectual property. So is that something you think about too, between your work as Martha and your work co-writing? Yeah, I wouldn't do it like intellectual property, but also, like I was saying before, whatever that character is doing in your universe affects every other series out there. And the fans know it and they'll point it out to you. Why can this character do this here when you sit over there that that no one can? And it'll affect future decisions. So one thing sometimes a writer will want to do is they'll want to do something and they'll say that it was a worldwide thing. And I'm always cutting the back to, no, it was a Seattle thing because it affects too many books to do these global kind of uh, pronunciations. It just needs to be smaller so that you can stay in your own little world. And no, I won't let, no, there's, it's one thing to have somebody make a guest appearance within the universe. It makes no sense for them to step out of that universe into something else. No, I wouldn't do it. Mm, yeah it's funny isn't it these kind of things we have to think about and it goes from uh the story side to the business side so I wanted to talk to you because I watched your high-powered authors panel at 20 books Vegas in 2022 which is on YouTube and I'll link to this in the show notes and you were there with a wonderful panel so what do you see as the most important things for an author who wants to be as successful in terms of the number of books and income and all that uh I would say that For me, it's an ongoing process of asking myself what I want and being courageous and willing enough to take steps toward it and to ask for help. So for a good example is I'm doing my first Kickstarter that'll be out in May. And when I started looking into it last year, I knew nothing about Kickstarter. I had been a customer and or contributor 
on the site, but I'd never seen the other side. So I started by asking questions. You have to have a willingness to know nothing again and just keep asking questions and sorting through till you get to where you start to get an idea of how you want to approach something. And, you know, you want to keep it fresh and and just keep going. It's interesting because, I mean, like, so we mentioned Michael Landley. He's been on the show to, and Craig Martell talking about 20 books to 50K. So some people will be aware of that. But the model of high-powered indies like yourself a few years ago was realistically, it was rapid release, write a lot of books, rapid release into KU plus ads. That was kind of where it started. And now it seems that this has morphed quite a lot. Yeah. So why are you personally getting into Kickstarter? How is the model changing for indies? The model will always change for all authors, whether they're traditional indie, but particularly for indies, because we have to think of the business side of things more. And back when we were doing rapid release, there were fewer of us. And so readers had a desire for more books and putting them out rapidly gave people who read a book a day exactly what they wanted. And it was a way to stake your place in the author world to fans in a very quick way you stood out and also it was taking advantage really it was also taking advantage of the amazon algorithms because it would keep throwing your books to the front of the line so quickly that they all stood out together and it pointed out to these whale readers look there's at least three of them and you had a better chance of appearing on a bestseller list even if it was for the new bestseller list which is kind of separate so that was a lot of the reason to do that But the world is changing. There's a lot more of us who are writing. And also that rapid release is tough. It's a lot of writing. You may have to store up the books. It's just different decisions. So with Kickstarter, it's a whole different ballgame and it's kind of fun. And you can bundle things. You can offer different ways to do it. You can add art more easily without adding so much cost. And the amount you keep is higher. And I'm a curious person. I like to try new things. And Kickstarter is a whole different way to do it. A lot of the people are doing uh, box games. I'm told Kickstarter is the biggest seller of box games that there is. So you can try so many more things. Patreon was very big a couple of years ago. And a lot of people are still doing it, but it's not the hot thing anymore. And so now Kickstarter is, and I'm sure two or three years down the road, there'll be something else we're all looking at. Some of it I'll ignore. I never did Patreon. And some of it I'll pick up. But my goal is to start to build a separate audience because I don't know how many of the people from who are fans in Kindle Unlimited will actually walk over to Kickstarter. It might be a whole new group and I'm kind of starting from scratch, which I think could be kind of fun to build an entirely new audience. Mm, I love that you say kind of fun and that you're up for learning new things. And you're exactly right. I mean, when I started self-publishing, there was no KDP. You know, there, there was, there was right. none, of, none of this. It was yeah. my, my first self-publishing experience was printing a load of books and keeping them in my garage. There was no print right. demand. I mean, this is what's so crazy People coming in now think that this is it, this is the thing, but every it, it changes. You say every couple of years, things change. And what I love about Kickstarter is that you can do higher priced, beautiful right. products as well. And I feel like it's valuing our IP in a different way as well to do these different products. 
And like you said, you can do a higher quality. And I really think that the advantage too is unlike every other way we sell, Kickstarter gives you the emails. So you can create your own access to your fans where you don't need to talk to anybody else. You can sell direct. At some point, you could sell directly to them. And there's nothing more powerful. So Brandon Sanderson, who we all love to talk about because of what happened last year when he did a Kickstarter and it garnered 44 million. Well, imagine the email list he has. That is the most valuable thing I feel that he got out of it. And so like for my first Kickstarter, if I hit goal, but don't go much above that, frankly, to me, that's a sign that I've hit a new vein of fans and that's good news. And so if it takes two or three years to build up a really strong fan base, so be it. I mean, I'll still be having fun. That's the goal for me is um, clearly you want to pay the bills, uh, but you can have fun while you're doing it. You just have to figure out how do I accomplish both? Yeah, absolutely. And if it's not fun, then go do something else. Why are you doing it? Right. (laughs) Because, yeah, because this career is a lot of fun and it's a lot of work. And if you're really not having fun at it, it's going to feel really tough most of the time. So on the days when I am struggling with a character or a scene, and I've even talked to a couple authors and I'm still thinking, this is not working. I'm still glad I'm here. I'm still thrilled I'm doing it. And I'll go do something else to kind of redirect my brain. And I still have confidence that at some point I'll figure it out. I'm not thinking, dear Lord, if only I could finish this so I could sell it, so I could have the money. That's not where I'm going. I'm I'm really still focused on the book thinking somehow this is going to work. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with you. And that's why doing these different projects and trying different tools is fun. But burnout is a real problem in the indie community Uh, or indie land, as you call it, especially, yeah, especially around that rapid release. So what are your tips for the sustainable creative and staying balanced with yourself and the business and everything? That's a great question. And um Uh, Yeah, if rapid release is not for you, if doing a book every other month is not for you, if three books a month or year, excuse me, is really your thing or one big book a year or whatever it is, then head for that. You're just going to ask different questions. Your questions are going to be about how do I sustain curiosity with my audience so that when they see my second book, they'll want to come and try it. So here's a better way to put it. When we started, Michael in his author notes and on Facebook is naturally very funny and people just love it. I am not funny in that way. I'm more, um, I'm going to connect with you on how do you feel? What do you want to be doing? And so I had to make a decision early on that I was going to have to be me. And that's my pit bull, by the way, behind me. This is the dog show. (laughs) I know. That's Bluebell and Lois Lane who are hanging out with me. And they're both deaf. One was born deaf and one has gone deaf. So nobody's paying attention to me. (laughs) But I mean, that's interesting. You have two dogs. You must be healthy and out walking them. And there are ways that you're sustaining your life as well as your your business. Absolutely. And that's a good point too. I, um, with some of the money that I've made that I've been fortunate enough to make, I put in a vast garden in the back that Michael refers to as the forest. And it covers the sides of the house and the almost the entire backyard. And it's your typical suburban size. So it's not huge. 
but it's amazing. And I had a delivery person dropping off a chair for back there. And I love that he stood still for like a minute and took a deep breath and you could feel his shoulders dropping. And so I did that for myself where I can always go sit in the backyard and take a breath. So yeah, I found, and I have to eat right. I've noticed that if I'm off like eating junk food, it's harder to write. So yeah, the margin of error when you're putting out a lot of books gets thinner. But I'm also 63 and the margin of error got thinner anyway. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, thanks for mentioning your age because also on your website, you say you're a late bloomer and it's like you've got over 200 books and I mean you might have another let's say 30 years fingers crossed yeah fingers crossed but what would you say to any writer who feels like it's too late to get started either because of their age or because they think indies already happened oh indies never already happened it's like what you and I were just saying the thing everybody was playing with might be played out, but there's something right around the corner that we can all go play with that's new. And it's ne- this is one of the few creative professions, I guess painting would be the same, where it's really not going to matter how old you are. It's do you have a good idea? Do you have curiosity? And are you willing to put in the work? And uh, And also to a degree, do you like at least online, mingling with people. I just watched a lot of writers who say to me, I don't like social media. And I keep thinking, you don't have to like it. You just have to be on it. Because writers who interact with their fans, even if you can have somebody who has a great book, but they're not online. And somebody who has a book that's decent, it's not the best thing, but it's a good story. And they're online with their fans and they go to that guy because they want to support him. It's kind of like Kickstarter in a way. Everything in this world is about community and relationships. So if you go online and mingle with people, but in terms of being too late, it's never too late. Frankly, there was a book that came out in traditional land last year called Lessons in Chemistry. It's such a good standalone book. And the author, it's her first book and she's 65. Oh, and, I didn't know that. I heard yeah. of the book, but I didn't know the author. Because often now it's like in traditional, they don't want older authors because, no, you She's know. She's a one-off. Mm. But her book is so good. I'm sure an editor read it and thought, we're doing this one anyway. <laughs> but in indie land, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. If you believe in it, go for it. And the nice thing too is I've seen enough people do the do books that I personally find strange and thousands of people adored. And I love that. And so it's like, you go be you, an audience will find you. And by the way, the authors who really have a strong opinion, nope, this is me, are more likely to find that niche audience because we're none of us are one-offs as humans. And so if I exist and thousands of others like me exist, and if I can be true to myself, they're going to find me. It's when I'm trying to be something I'm not, and I'm trying to please too many people, it gets harder and harder to tell who I am. And it's going to come out in the style of writing. And therefore, it gets harder for people to kind of glom onto me. So Shane Silvers does great business He's in urban fantasy too, just like me. We're both killing it. Our audiences don't cross much. His is a much darker style of urban fantasy and mine is much more to the light. And I think that's wonderful. There's so much room for all of us. It also makes it possible to cheer on somebody else 
And it doesn't take anything away from me at all to help somebody else. It doesn't take anything at all away. It's not a contest. It's never a contest. So yeah, if you're old, if you have certain physical limitations, and but you want to do this, just go for it. I mean, I'll be doing this in some form. One of the reasons I'm doing the Kickstarter and, and coming up with a new way of selling is because at some point I want to do my version of retiring. So if I can do fewer books in a year in a different way, then that would be my idea of retirement. And that's why I'm doing it. You're, it's never too late. Mm, well, that's brilliant. So where can people find you and your books online? So the best way is to go to marthacar.com, C-A-R-R, um, and sign up for the newsletter and you'll keep abreast of contests and what new books are coming out from both Orosarin um, and whatever books I'm doing and the Kickstarter. And that's the best way to stay in touch or to get in touch with me. I do answer everyone who writes to me. I always feel like somebody took the time to really tell me how they feel about it. I can take a few minutes to answer. Mm, Brilliant. So, well, thanks so much for your time, Martha. That was great. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Martha and that it gave you some things to think about in terms of your creative process and your sustainable business model for the long term. Coming up this week, I have an in-between episode on writing with AI. And then next week, I'm talking about building a seven-figure book business with Pierre Gentil, who is also a poet. So that will be fascinating. Uh, I'm very excited about that. In the meantime, happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.